0: Well, we are uh, in the middle of a a series on the Gospel of Luke. We actually started this before Christmas and got to read all of the wonderful pre-Christmas stuff in Luke, the promises made to Zechariah and Elizabeth and to Mary and Joseph. And now we actually see Jesus ready to kind of kick off his public ministry. Last week, we looked at the baptism of John, how John was baptizing for repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. This week, we get to actually talk about kind of a partner to that uh, repentance, and it's temptation, resisting temptation. So, if you will, open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 4. It's printed also in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along there. We're going to look at how Jesus was tempted, and I think that we are going to learn not only a lot about who he is, but also about God's character and what it means for us to be tempted and particularly to resist. So follow along. I'm starting in verse 1, Luke chapter 4. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. Understatement of the year. you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Lord, we are thankful for your word. We say that because our hearts need to know it, is that you have given us your truth. We ask that we would come under that truth now and be changed by it, that you would speak through this word to our hearts. Open our eyes where we are blind and unstop our ears where we are deaf. Let us see Jesus in his glory today. We pray this all in his name. Amen. Well, you know, it's always, um, it's always said people, people speak highly of, of folks who say what they mean, you know, and mean what they say. But a lot of times in our lives, there's underlying meanings. Big underlying questions are at the heart of one thing That's maybe said a different way. For instance, uh, when you walk in late to class and the teacher says, I'm so glad you chose to join us today. It really doesn't have anything to do with the teacher's gladness, does it? It has everything to do with your tardiness. Or when someone from the South says, well, bless your heart. They're not really being all that nice to you. Or good husbands know that when your wife calls and says, when are you coming home? That's not a question. That's come home. Now, there's something that's kind of underlying there, right? And that's actually going on in this passage too. Satan, the devil, actually tempts Jesus in three different ways. And he tempts them, he tempts him with regular things. Jesus is in the wilderness and he is tempted by Satan to particular things. But there's a subtext as well. There are questions that lie beneath all three of these temptations. And they're questions that we need to deal with. They're questions about who Jesus is, they're questions about who God is, they're questions about the character of God and what that actually means for us. So that's what we're going to look at today, is some deep questions that are unearthed here in these temptations. Here's the first question, and it's the question of God's love. Does God really love you? Look actually at the way that it's said here in verse 3. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone. So what's on the top? It's food. There's temptation toward food. Jesus, as we read earlier, is in the desert. He's been there in the wilderness area. He's been there for 40 days alone, and he hasn't eaten. Now, 40 days and not eating is a pretty difficult time. Jesus is weak. Jesus is hungry. Jesus is actually at his wit's end. He is a human being like you or I, and 40 days without food is near the point of death. And so the devil comes and he tempts him where Jesus is down, where he's at his worst, hoping to get a foothold here. And he says, if you're hungry, go ahead and eat. Now, the temptation of the devil with food If it sounds familiar, it should. That should send off some alarms for us. We've seen this before. When we open up the Bible in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3, we find the devil actually doing the same thing. He tempts Adam and Eve with food. But here's what I want you to know. Do you remember the question that the devil asks Adam and Eve? He says, did God really say that you can't have any of this? Did God really say that you can't eat any of this good food? I mean, look around. It's wonderful. There's beautiful food everywhere. Did God really say you're not supposed to have it? Do you hear what he's saying? Does God really care for you? Does he really love you? Because if he did, I mean, would he put these limits on you? Did you hear the question that he also asked Jesus? If you are God's son is how he starts the temptation. Now, just rewind with me a little bit. If your Bible's open, you can look back uh, at the uh, end of chapter 3. Actually, in, uh, uh, in verse 22 of chapter 3, this is the tail end of the Scripture that we talked about last week. We talked about John baptizing people. At the very end, we see that Jesus is baptized. Listen to how this passage ends. Now, when all the people were baptized, when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, "'This is my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased.'" And then interestingly, we actually have this section of a genealogy of Jesus stuck in between these two passages. This is the part we normally skip, right? Genealogy is the son of whom Who's the son of whom Who's the son of blah, blah, blah. But listen how it starts. It starts with Jesus, the son of, and listen how it ends, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Luke has given us two clues already. God, the Father's voice saying, you are my son, and now this genealogy that ends with the Son of God, and then do you hear the devil saying, if you are God's son, he's calling into question Jesus' identity. It's that question that looms, if God really is pleased with you, if you really are his son, if he's really, if he really loves you, would he have taken you out here? I mean, in the wilderness? where you're lonely, where you don't have anything to eat? Would God really do this if he loves you? This is a question that we deal with a lot, isn't it? When we are hungry, that's the question that oftentimes comes up in our hearts. Maybe it's hungry for friendship, hungry for purpose, hungry for clarity about what's next, hungry for conflict to resolve, hungry for some sort of sense of understanding of the way that things are around us. And that question starts to creep up. Does God really love me? Because I feel like I'm kind of out here in the wilderness all alone. I feel like things are pretty desolate. Would God really take me out here if he loved me? Well, friends, the answer to that question from the Bible Does God sometimes lead his people into times of hunger, into wilderness wanderings? The answer is yes. But the answer to the question, does that mean that God doesn't love you when he does, is a resounding no. I read a wonderful story about an older couple. Uh, The woman's name was Joyce, and she tells this story to her friends that uh, after 38 years of marriage with her husband, something odd happened. He proposed to her. He had been struggling with dementia, and he had forgotten that they were married, but he hadn't forgotten that he loved her. And so he asked her to marry him. And being the loving wife, instead of saying, you fool, we're already married, let me show you the certificate, she said, of course I'll marry you. And they had a ceremony, and they invited all their friends, and they went through their vows, and it was a beautiful, beautiful day. Sometimes, especially in the times where it's hard especially in the times where we feel empty, where we feel hungry, we need to be reminded that we are loved. We need to be reminded that we belong to God as his children. We need to be reminded that he has bound himself to us forever. We need to hear those words, don't we? You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Let's move on to the second question. Not only does God really love you, but is God really good? In particular, are his ways for you actually good? Look at verse 5, the next temptation that the devil gives Jesus. When the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it's been delivered to me and I'll give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. You know, you've seen this script in just about every action movie there is. Is that at some point the villain who is utterly insecure about his life, you know, has taken captive the hero's wife or girlfriend and he's holding her there and he says, "Okay, I've got her and I won't kill her if you will just bow the knee to me. If you will tell me basically that I'm right, if you will somehow serve me and show me that I am great and you are small, right? It's his incredible uh, incompetence and insecurity just pouring out. Well, it turns out uh, maybe Hollywood screenwriters have read more of the Bible than we think they have because that's the script here too. That's exactly what we see the devil doing out of this deep insecurity for the son of God who owns all things, he kind of pulls this great villain trick. It can be a little bit confusing when we read here the devil saying, all authority, all of this authority has been given to me. And the thing is, that's actually true. There is a modicum of authority and reign that Satan has over this world. When Adam and Eve fell into sin and in some real way they actually usurped or they, were, they, they gave up their dominion and Satan actually usurped it and took it. And so he is offering now that sort of authority to Jesus if he will just serve him. But of course there's deep irony here too, right? Because when you open up the Bible and you read something like Psalm 2 where you have the Lord saying, it's to the Son that I give all authority, Sit at my right hand and I will make your enemies your footstool. I have given you all the nations as your heritage. Or you look in the New Testament and you see Colossians 1 talking about the glory and preeminence of Christ, that he has created all things, including rulers and authorities and dominions and powers. John 1 that talks about Jesus as the one who is through whom all things were created, or Hebrews 1 that says that Jesus, by the word of his power, upholds all things. Or Philippians 2, where we read the Apostle Paul saying that it's to Jesus has been given the name that is above every name. That at his his name, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. This is the beautiful irony of all of this, right? Is that Jesus owns it all. How can he be tempted to be given something that he already owns? It's all of his anyway. Guess what? The devil knows that. You know, every time Jesus, just about every time Jesus cast out a demon, when you hear the demon speak, you know, the first thing they say, we know who you are. He knows who he is. The temptation is not actually to take what is rightfully his, but to take what is rightfully his in the wrong way. See, when you look at Philippians 2 and you track back a few verses, what you find is that Jesus humbled himself taking on the form of a servant that he might find his glory in suffering and death on a cross. Jesus is to find his glory in suffering. The temptation is to find what is rightfully his by short-circuiting that suffering. Boy, that's a temptation for us too, isn't it? To see something good and to take it in a way that God says is not good. To find something good, something that is supposed to be actually used in the worship of God and to his glory, but to put it in the center of our lives so that we make it an ultimate thing and therefore abuse it. To take something that is good and to use it in an improper way. We do this all the time. One way that we do it all the time is with sexual intimacy. The Bible says that intimacy between man and woman is good. It's wonderful. It's glorious but when we take it outside of the context for which it was supposed to be, relationship between a husband and a wife, then we actually do something that not only dishonors that, but is dangerous for us. Think about a fireplace for a minute. Uh, Social scientists and architects will actually tell you that fire is, is essential to human flourishing, and not just because you can cook food on it, but because it's wonderful. It's it's why architects still build fireplaces in places like New Braunfels. It's why when it drops below 70 pretty much in my house we have a fire. It's cuz it's wonderful. You sit around and you watch these incredible flickering flames and it's mesmerizing and it draws people together and it just does something magic, doesn't it? When it's in the fireplace. But what happens when it's outside of the fireplace? It will destroy your house. It will destroy your life. That is the way that sin works. Something good that we take outside of what God has said is the right way to use it that then becomes something destructive. It can be many things. Making people feel good. I like to make people feel good. I like it when people like me. I like it when when people, uh, you know, give me pats on my back. Friends, that's really not a bad thing. Actually, enjoying one another and comforting one another and encouraging one another, those are good things, right? But when I'm seeking that from a woman who's not my wife, when I'm seeking that primarily from the people that I'm supposed to be leading or teaching, and that primary goal is to receive something from them rather than give it, then I've actually taken it out of the fireplace and put it on the walls. And it's going to be destructive to everyone involved. Think of this image as well. A fish in a fishbowl. Now, if this were, you know, a 2020 American Texan fish, you know, he'd be thinking, you know, could we get these stupid walls out so I can have some freedom? That's the first thing that we oftentimes think, right? There are constraints for the fish. It is constrained in deep ways. It cannot go anywhere else other than the fishbowl. But what happens when we remove those constraints? It does not lead to the fish's flourishing. The fish dies because the water goes everywhere. The same is true of God's word. He has hemmed us in. He has given us his good way that we might find flourishing and wholeness and happiness. The temptation then to go outside of that is the temptation to believe that God is just not good, that the way that he has called us to live is just not right, that he really doesn't care for us, because if he did, he would let us do whatever we want. Friends, the truth is God is good. His law is good. His word is good. His way is the right way. It is where we will find our fullness, our wholeness, our happiness. Let's move on to the third question. It's a question about God's care. Look at verse 9. The devil took him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it's written, he'll command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they'll bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Testing God, what does that mean? Well, we've got, you know, kind of uh, the big illustrations. Uh, I read a story about in 2006, at the Kiev Zoo, a man decided to jump into the lion enclosure And stood in the middle of the lions and said, if God exists, then he will save me. God does exist. Save, not so much in that example. Or you've seen, you know, these churches, maybe you've been to uh, one of these snake handling churches. Churches where the pastors actually take rattlesnakes up with them and they have them crawl all over themselves with this idea of, you know what? God is protecting me so much that I won't get bit by these snakes except that most of the time they get bit by the snakes. And oftentimes, they die. That is testing God. But you know, we do this in little ways too. Because when we're really asking that question, is God going to take care of me? What we're asking is, if there is a time where it feels like I might be in pain, if there is a time where maybe there's some suffering that could come in my life, is God going to care for me? And don't be confused. When I say suffering, I'm not just talking about big things like being in jail or losing a loved one. I'm talking about little things as well because the small sufferings still bring the big question, is God going to care for me? I have a friend who spent 2019, uh, had decided in 2019 he wasn't going to drink alcohol. And he tells of this because he decided he he wasn't going to drink because he was abusing it. Because he had decided, I really can't handle this anymore. But it was really great being able to listen to the ways that he had, uh, the, the, the little kind of pains that would come oftentimes belonging to this decision. Right? When over at somebody's house and they open up a bottle of wine, and you're the one who says, uh, actually, no, I won't have a drink. Feeling of loneliness. Isolation. I'm the only person here who's not doing the same thing everybody else is doing. Or at a party when you say, yeah, actually I've decided that I'm not drinking this year and the reason is because I couldn't really handle it very well. And to see the happy face of the person in front of you just kind of turn into a blank stare and not know what to do with you at all. And those kind of thoughts of, maybe I'm actually a lot more fun when I'm a little buzzed. Maybe these people don't like me as much when I'm totally sober. Maybe I won't get invited to this party next year. That's suffering. That's suffering. It's pain. That's loneliness. And it's in those times where we actually get to turn to the Lord and say, you know what? In that sort of pain, you will care for me. I don't have to care for myself because it's God who cares. That big question, will God care for me even in the times of my life that are difficult, that is answered with a resounding yes in the Scriptures. God does care. He has sent his son to show it. There's three big questions wrapped up in those temptations, but before we finish, uh, I want to introduce another question as well. It's a question that we really oftentimes ask, and it's this question. Is Jesus really able to save? Is Jesus really able to deliver me? Maybe you're asking that question in your own heart now. Is Jesus able to deliver me from temptation? Is he able to deliver me from my own sin? Is he able to deliver me from the difficulty that I'm in? Well, friends, I want to point out something that's really amazing going on in this passage. Because not only is Jesus actually unveiling these deep questions that we deal with as well, he's actually doing something incredible. He is reversing the flow of the fall. He is reversing the effects of sin in the world. Now, see if you can follow along with me. In Genesis chapter 3, where do we find Adam and Eve? They're in a beautiful garden. They're together. They've got companionship. They have the gorgeous garden all around them. They have everything that they need. They're wonderfully cared for. Life is flourishing. And in comes Satan to introduce these questions to him. Does God really love you? Is God's way really good? He said to keep away from that, but is that the good way? Is God really going to be there and be your security and care for you? the times in your life that might get a little bit difficult? Does God really care? And with those questions, Adam and Eve actually fell into temptation. And with their sin, they brought all of the world into a state of brokenness with them. But where's Jesus? He actually starts in the wilderness, not in a garden. He's alone. He's not surrounded by food. He's hungry. And to him, at his moment of deepest weakness, Adam and Eve are at their best. Jesus is at his worst here. Come these deep questions. Is God good? Is he loving? Does he care for you? Did God really say? And you know what Jesus does? He triumphs. Jesus doesn't just walk into the wilderness for a hike. He doesn't walk in there for some alone time. He walks in for a battle. This is cosmic battle that's happening here. And this is Jesus winning. We read in Revelation 20 that at the end of all things, Jesus will actually finally defeat Satan, throw him into the lake of fire. We get that picture of what it's like in the end. But guess what? The seeds of that victory are planted right here. Jesus wins. He is reversing the fall. That's important to us because it really does answer that final question. Is he able to deliver? You bet he is. Does God love you? He does. He has sent his son to die for you, to fight the battle that you could not fight. Is God's way the good way? Well, Jesus has actually blazed that path already for us. Will God care for you and protect you in the midst of suffering? He will, because Jesus has taken the ultimate suffering on your behalf. He's the one that we can turn to in temptation. Let's turn to him today. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for your Son in whom you are pleased, your Son who has fought the battles that we could not, your Son who has resisted the temptations that we fall to every day, and we're thankful for the ringing answers that his actions proclaim for us, that you love us, that your ways are good, that you protect us even when life is difficult. Lord, will you teach our hearts that beautiful truth today, that we might cling to Jesus more and more in all that we do, that we might run from temptation and turn to him in faith. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.